Well, it's good to see everybody again. It's been a couple of weeks since uh, Diane and I have been in church. We actually were on vacation. We were suffering for Jesus in Hawaii. So um, grateful to do that. And uh, uh, we were actually there uh, with, our, with Diane's extended family. We were there to celebrate Diane's uh, parents' 60th wedding anniversary, which was really a cool thing. And, yeah, thank you. I mean, that's worth clapping about. And uh, just honored to be able to be with them and with her family and uh, had a great time. And yet, I just want to let you know, it wasn't all paradise in Hawaii. Uh, we did pray for you all on Wednesday when you got the snow and the cold weather. And then also, we watched the Chiefs game on Sunday like the rest of you did and suffered with all of you. But I would tell you that it's a lot easier to overcome a Chiefs devastating loss in the playoffs in Hawaii than it is here in Kansas. So when the game was over, we're like, well, that was a bummer. Let's go to the beach. Okay, sounds great. And we didn't think about it the rest of the time. also would say that the day we were supposed to come back, fly back a few hours before we went to the airport, we got the news that one of our flights had been canceled, and so we weren't going to be able to make it all the way home, and doggone it, we had to spend another day in Hawaii. So, And that's why we weren't here last Sunday. But uh, Doug was gracious, although I think he was a little bit suspicious when I let him know our flight got canceled. He wondered if it really got canceled, so... Uh, we are grateful. Thanks for letting us get away, and it was a great time. I want to just transition to kind of focus on the message now. And um, before I open up scriptures and kind of get into the details of that, I want to start with a story. Uh, a little boy was uh, in a Sunday school class, and he was asked to draw a picture of Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus on their flight into Egypt. And the teacher had been teaching about Matthew chapter 2, where the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and warns him to take the, his family and, and flee to Egypt because they need to get away from the murderous King Herod. And so the boy sits down, the little boy sits down, and he draws a picture immediately of a, of a large airplane. And his, his teacher comes by and says, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's the flight into Egypt, of course. And he showed, he pointed out, there's Mary and Joseph and Jesus sitting in the passenger seat, and they looked quite happy. And then the teacher uh, pointed at the cockpit and said, well, who's that in the cockpit? And she was pointing to a shadowy figure in the cockpit. And he said, well, he's getting a little frustrated at this point with all our questions. And he said, well, that's Pontius the pilot, of course. Who else would it be? (laughs) And so it's not only five-year-olds who misunderstand what Christianity is about every once in a while. There must be millions of people, even in our country alone, who have rejected what they think is Christianity, but they've actually rejected something that's only a pale imitation of the real thing. And I believe there's a great many of Christians who at some point have lost sight of the basics of the faith as well. And I want us to look at Mark chapter 8 today to find out exactly what it means to be a Christian. You know, the past few Sundays we've been exploring our faith and, and what does it mean for our life as we've been looking primarily at the gospel of Mark. And so This morning, the aim of the message is to recap what we've covered so far about Jesus' identity and his mission, and then to explain what Jesus demands of those who choose to follow him. And specifically, I want to answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? And so, who is Jesus? That's the first question. The question really has dominated the entire first half of the book of Mark. And we as the readers already know the answer. As we've seen, Mark told us the answer in the very beginning of his book where he said, he writes this in the very first verse, that this book is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And you would think that that might drain the interest out of reading the rest of the book, but the fact is that the disciples don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what we know. And so we follow them around as we look at Mark and watching them as they try to make sense of just who is Jesus. And Jesus, for his part, forces them to ask questions about who he is by doing amazing things, as we've seen, as we've read. Uh, They watch him calming a violent storm, uh, curing incurable diseases, uh, bringing a little girl back from the dead. Uh, They even uh, hear him claim to be able to forgive someone's sin. And yet they, they don't come up with the obvious answer that this is God's anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who's been promised throughout the, all of the Old Testament. And they were expecting it. They were desperately hoping that God would send a Messiah. But now that he's there, standing right in front of them, they just don't see it. Have you ever uh, looked at one of those trick pictures that seem to show one thing, but when you look at it for quite a while, it actually shows another image, something entirely different? Probably the best known is uh, one that is a picture of a beautiful young woman that's on the screen that can also be seen as an old, uh, old woman. And, you know, I can remember, I don't remember actually the first time I saw this picture, but I know that initially when I looked at it, I could only see the beautiful young Woman, I couldn't see the old woman for quite a while in the picture. It took me a while. Now, if there's a psychologist among you or watching online, I'm sure there's something very interesting about my observation that you would be glad to tell me about. But in a similar way, Jesus also has two faces, the human and the divine. The the two were obvious. They were there for all to see. But even though the disciples stared and stared at him for many years, all they could see was the man. They couldn't see the divine face of Jesus. And Mark draws our attention to their blindness again and again in his book. For example, he does it in Mark chapter 8 in verses 17 and 18. Jesus is exasperated with the disciples. He says this, he says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And then quite strikingly, The very next incident we read about in the gospel is Jesus enabling a blind man to see. Mark 8, beginning in verse 22, and that's where we're going to pick up the passage. And I invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them, or you can watch on the screen behind me or open up the church app that we have and and read along. But we're going to start in verse 22 and go to the end of the book throughout the message. And so this is what the Bible tells us, beginning in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see people. And they look like trees walking around. And we know that people don't really look like trees. And so while he has vision, he doesn't have clear vision at this point. And so once more, Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes and Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And this miracle is quite unique because it's the only miracle, uh, only one of Jesus' miracles that happened gradually. First, Jesus touches the blind man and, and he begins to see, but we're told only vaguely. And then Jesus touches his eyes again and the man sees clearly, he sees perfectly. And Mark wants us to see that this is a parallel to the way that the disciples are looking at Jesus, that they don't see Jesus clearly. They don't see him for who he really is. And of course, the disciples aren't physically blind, but 
but they're spiritually blind. But either way, they still need Jesus to heal them in order for them to see him for who he really is. And then in verses 27 to 29, we see their spiritual blindness begin to be cured. And they won't be fully, fully cured until much later. But they begin to understand what Jesus came to do. and what. It, but yet they see him for who he is. But they don't clearly yet understand what he came to do and what it means to follow him. But there for the first time, there's an indication that they begin to understand who Jesus is. And we read these words in verses 27 to 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, what do people, who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, uh, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And this is a big step forward for the disciples. Finally, they've recognized Jesus is the Christ, the king that's promised in the Old Testament who would have had the power and the authority of God himself. And Jesus is asking them a scorching question in the passage. But who do you say I am? It's very personal, right? At this point in Mark's gospel, that it also gets very personal for us as well. Who do we say Jesus is? When we look at the face of Jesus, who do we see? Do we just see the human face or do we also see the divine face as well? It's not enough simply to know Jesus' true identity. Peter gets the question of Jesus' identity absolutely right, doesn't he? But when it comes to the question of what Jesus came to do... Peter gets it horribly wrong at this point. He doesn't understand. He doesn't see clearly. And so we move on to the second question. Why did Jesus come? Let's look at the next verse, verse 30. Mark says that Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now that the disciples have seen a glimpse of who he is and what his identity is, what is Jesus' response? He warns them not to tell anyone about him. Why does he do that? Well, you see, at this point, their eyes are only half open. Jesus knows that although they see him for who he is, they don't yet see why he has come or what it means to follow him. And that's why he tells them, I think, not to tell anyone at this point about him. And then Jesus begins to teach them more about himself. It's as if he's beginning to correct their partial vision that they have of him. Look at verses 31 and 32. He then began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die for us, to suffer and to die for us. In fact, it's necessary that he die. And Jesus knows at this point that he This is what he's going to need to do, that this is what it means for him to come. He knows that the only way in which sinful people are going to be restored to a right relationship with God is for him to die in our place if he dies for us. But Peter, he has a different image. He has an image of Jesus as king so clearly in his mind that it seems entirely inappropriate for him that Jesus would have to die, right? And so he tells Jesus so. He takes him aside and he gives him a pep talk. He basically is saying, how can a 
how on earth can a king bring a kingdom if he's going to die? That just doesn't seem possible. It seems ridiculous to Peter. And Jesus tells Peter that he's got it all wrong. He, does, he has it all wrong. And look at verse 33, and this is what he says. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, in a way, I, I don't blame Peter for uh, wanting to see that Jesus' kingdom was going to be different. After all, there are two ways that we can look at the cross. If Jesus says we have in mind only human concerns, there's tremendous weakness at the cross. Jesus seems exposed. He seems humiliated. He seems defeated from a human point of view. The cross seems to prove conclusively that Jesus, while he got a lot of things right about God, the cross would seem to indicate that you know he really can't be the Son of God. He's not a king. If he really was the Son of God, why wouldn't he come down from the cross, right? A king should be on a throne, not on a cross. But what if we look at the cross from a different perspective? What if we look at it from a different angle, from God's perspective? What if we have in our minds, as Jesus says, the thing of God, the things of God? Then we can see the cross as part of God's rescue plan. We can see that Jesus chooses to be separated from God so that we don't have to be separated from God moving forward. Paying the terrible price for our sin and being executed in our place, not for crimes that he committed, but for things that we've done wrong. And from God's perspective, and from ours, if we have the things of of God in our mind, this is not weakness. There's never been a point in history that has proven to be a, a, a more powerful moment than the moment that Jesus is on the cross. On January 13, 1982, millions of television viewers watched as a balding middle-aged man attempted to continue to swim in icy cold waters of a river in Washington, D.C. And seven inches of snow had fallen that morning, and the water was so cold that life expectancy was only a few minutes. A helicopter quickly reached the scene and let down a rope to haul the man to safety, and the viewers at home were quite amazed as the man twice grabbed the rope and then two times intentionally let go of the rope. And each time the rope was lowered to him, he had a chance of survival, but he chose to let it go. And in front of millions of avidly watching viewers, the man eventually drowned on, on the screen. And it seemed like a futile and a pointless death, but we need to see the broader picture. You see, five minutes earlier, a Boeing 737 jet carrying 83 passengers and flight crew had departed from Reagan National Airport Runway. However, the ice had built up on the wings while they waited to leave, and it prevented them from gaining altitude, and they crashed into a bridge on a heavy commuter morning and then plunged into the icy Potomac River. And the survivors struggled in the freezing river amongst uh, floating cushions and ice chunks and debris and luggage and jet fuel. And thankfully, a rescue helicopter came quite quickly, and it, and these cameras, and it let down a rope, and the cameras picked out this balding over uh, weight middle-aged man and he grabbed the rope and then intentionally deliberately gave it to somebody else he let go and gave it to somebody else and then and that person was hauled to safety and then it was lowered again and again the man grabbed it intentionally let go of it and gave it to somebody else and did that two more times before ultimately he slipped under the water and drowned now when we see all these details in front of us an apparent futile death is shown to be purposeful Daring and amazingly loving. And Jesus' death is all of those things and more. 
He died also as a part of a rescue mission. In his amazing love, he came to earth and he died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved and so that we could enter into a relationship with God. And he was forsaken so that we didn't need to be forsaken any longer. And there are two ways that we can look at the cross. We can see it from a human perspective as a pathetic, needless death, or we can see it from God's perspective as our only means of rescue. Our lives as well as our deaths are are going to determine by the way in which we respond to what Jesus did on the cross. And that leads to our third question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It's not enough to recognize Jesus for who he is and for why he came. Just like the disciples, we also need to understand what does it mean to follow him. I want you to look at verse 34 in the passage. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And according to Jesus' own words here, following him requires a change of allegiance. It also means Jesus' call to die. And then because these things aren't easy, he goes on and he gives us a convincing reason to follow him. First, again, Jesus demands, following Jesus demands a change of allegiance. Again, the verse says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And denying them ourselves means no longer living for ourselves. And if you're not sure, if you still, uh, if you do live for yourself, answer this question. Who has the right to tell you how to live your life? And instinctively, our response is usually to cry, no one. No one has the right to tell me how to live. No one has the right to tell me what to do and when to do it. And so literally, uh, You know, we oftentimes believe we have that right and only ourselves. But God made us. He sustains us. He provides for us. And we're dependent on him for everything that we have. And and it's absurd to live in God's world as if we are the ultimate authorities over our own lives. And so Jesus tells us to deny ourselves. He puts it another way in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 when he tells us to repent and to believe in the gospel. The word repent literally means to stop going our own direction and to turn and to go in a different direction, to change one's direction. And to repent and to believe means to stop going my own way and to say literally, Lord Jesus, I recognize who you are, and from now on I'm going to give you my life. You are in charge of my life. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. It's a simple and brief instruction, but it's just half a verse. But I want to tell us it's profoundly radical. There are real issues to grapple with if we wrestle with this verse, like my time and how I use it, my money and what do I do with it, my work and how I approach it, my sexuality and how I view it, my family and how I relate to them. Now, if I change the personal pronoun from my If I change it to God's gift or God's blessing, God's gift of time and how I use it, God's gift of money and what I do with it, God's call to work and how I approach it, God's gift of sexuality and how I view it, God's gift of my family and how I relate to them. If we change that from my to see that really God is the one who gives us those things, it changes our perspective. Second, though, Jesus issues a call to die. 
You see, Jesus' call is more than self-denial. You may have noticed there's an additional ingredient to Jesus' command. And he says again, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. Not only must we deny ourselves if we're to follow him, we must also take up our cross. Remember where Jesus himself is going at this point. He's already told the disciples he's headed towards the cross. And he, he, it's striking and not just a little disturbing to see that Jesus immediately turns his attention from him taking up his cross to us to ask us that we need to take up our cross to follow him. And although, uh, you know, again, it's unlikely that any of us are going to face a little, literal cross in our lifetime, the command, I believe, is still a chilling one. Jesus is telling us here that if we commit ourselves to him, it means a martyrdom of one kind or another. So this is Jesus' offer to his hearers. I will die for you, but you must be prepared to die for me if you want to follow me. It's a call to come and to die. In the early years of the 20th century, the explorer Ernest Shackleton put an advertisement in many of the London newspapers to try and find men who would join him on his exploration of the South Pole. And the advertisement ran like this. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Needless to say, there weren't a lot of people that applied to go with him on his trip. But Christ's appeal is somewhat similar. Come and follow me and be willing to die. Of course, Jesus isn't saying that all of his followers are going to face a violent death, but at the very least, they will face suffering. His followers can find themselves marginalized, isolated, misunderstood. Why? Because friends, family, or colleagues, or those around you may find your beliefs or your conduct uncomfortable, even at times offensive. If, for example, if you stand up for Christ's claim to be the way, the truth, and the life, and insisting that no one can come to God except through Jesus, then you're going to face opposition at times. A Christian is not only somebody who sees clearly who Jesus is and why he came. A Christian is someone who is prepared to follow him, whatever the cost. So with Jesus' call for a change of allegiance comes a call to die. And if you've grasped what it means, you may want to, well want to think very seriously before committing your life to Christ. There seems to be an awful lot to lose, Right? But with that in mind, Jesus goes on and he gives us a convincing reason for switching our allegiance to him. And so third, Jesus gives a convincing reason to follow him. If we think about following Christ in purely earthly terms, the cost seems too high. So Jesus' aim in verses 35 through 37 is to give us the right perspective, to look at those verses and to see what Jesus is saying is worth that change in allegiance. Let's look at verse 35. It says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The passage indicates that our souls are the most precious thing we have. If we lose our soul, there's nothing we can do to gain it back. And by nature, we tend to focus on the present circumstances, right? If something won't pay dividends right now, we often aren't very interested 
in that thing. But here, Jesus wants to lift our eyes from the present to look to the future and how important the future is because the Bible says the future is vitally important because it's eternal. It lasts forever. And when we die, it's not the end. It's only the beginning of forever. And Jesus teaches us there's a connection between how we live now and what will happen after death. And there's a twist because those, Jesus tells us, who try to save their lives will lose them. And while those who are prepared to lose their lives will save them, will gain them, right? And so Jesus knows well how much we want to cling to and hold on to our lives, to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But he wants us to know, he warns us that if we live in that way all the time, then ultimately we're going to lose the very thing we so desperately want to hold on to. He tells us if we really want to hold on to our lives, there's only one option to us, and that's to give our life in control to him, to give control of our lives to him. Christ is going to judge the world, we're told, whether we like it or not. And we can choose whether or not this judge will be our rescuer. And ultimately, we're going to be treated very fairly. We're going to be treated by Christ the same way we responded to him and the same way we've treated him. He tells us this in verse 38. This is what he says. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in my Father's glory with the holy angels. Because Jesus is the person who will come to judge our world, it's not a suicidal gesture to give him control of our lives. In doing so, I know that my life is going to be saved. Moreover, whenever we, whatever we think we might lose by following Christ pales in significance when we consider what awaits us in eternity, what awaits us in heaven. Jesus pleads with us, In this passage, he pleads with us to give up the very things that will destroy us. Things like self-love, self-worship, self-will. And he pleads with us to not waste our souls on such things. And so in the year uh, 1000 AD, 1000 AD, 186 years after the death of Emperor Charlemagne, officials of the Emperor Otto reopened Charlemagne's tomb. And before them was an extraordinary sight. In the midst of uh, the finery that was buried with him, all the gold, all the jewels, all the uh, precious treasure, uh, there was the skeleton of Charlemagne himself, still seated on his throne, still wearing his crown. And while he was still seated on the throne wearing his crown, in his lap there lay a Bible, and his bony finger rested on Mark 8, verse 36, that says, For what does it profit a man? to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. You know, my deal would be, hey, he's put all these treasures in there with him, and yet he's pointing to this verse. What, what did he, what did he, how did he respond to Jesus? What did he trust in? I wonder what answer Charlemagne gave at that moment. What answer will you give? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that, that you give us so clearly, finally, for the disciples, they begin to see Jesus as the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, your Son. And God, we're grateful for the ways in which they acknowledged that, and yet they still didn't understand why Jesus came or what it meant to be his follower. And I just want to pause in this prayer, and if you are convinced this morning 
for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to pray quietly in your heart a prayer that I'm going to pray out loud right now. So just follow with me in your heart. Jesus, I recognize that you came and that you died for me on the cross for my sins, that you are God's Son, that you say who you are, you said. And Jesus, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong, and I now give you control of my life. I choose to follow you as my leader, as my Lord. And Jesus, I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed, and I ask you to forgive me. And Jesus, I want to live faithfully as your disciple, knowing there's going to be challenges. But Jesus, trusting that you will be faithful, and you'll give me the resources. Thank you, Jesus. God, we just thank you. We thank you for Christ's love for us, his sacrifice for us. And God, we recognize that as a part of following Christ, there's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be challenges that we experience. God, we're grateful for the gift of your Holy Spirit that helps us in those moments of trial. God, we're grateful that you give us resources. You, you help us to stand strong and to be faithful. And God, we pray that we would be found faithful. And we're thankful, God. We want to be uh, followers of Christ, pointing people, not just with our words, but with our lives, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. So, God, we desire, help us to be faithful, not only with our words, but with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.